Today we're going to be talking about um, loving the undesirables and God's care and compassion for, for those that are marginalized in society, those that are outcasts in society. I had a good opportunity last night with you all to, to experience that as we went to the angel game. And you still loved me and let me go, even though I was saying go Dodgers and I was watching the Dodger game on my phone. And um, well, no, no, I wasn't doing that. It was, it was just the scores. Um, and I saw that, Joe, you didn't wear your Yankees hat yesterday. So both of us, we were accepted into the community, right? Even though we are outsiders at Village for, for our choice of baseball teams. We joke about that. But yet in our hearts... We can struggle with caring and having compassion for people different than us, can't we? For outsiders or for people, especially as the body of Christ, for people that are less mature spiritually than I am. Or people that somehow haven't arrived or, or don't share the same opinions. And we, we can, there's so many places we can go with that. But the question this morning that Jesus is going to confront us with is do we have a heart of compassion and a desire for salvation for everyone? Not just the people in our circles, but for every human being as image bearers of God. Do we have that compassion and desire? Because Jesus is going to start the, the third section of Luke and start his journey to the cross by reminding us of that very thing. I was reading a story this week as I was studying about a church that that was that had to deal with this issue, and it was. It just really made me think, and I'm still thinking about this story, and how would we handle it? Um, the pastor was um, Pastor Sauls, and he tells a story about one of his nursery workers, and um, the nursery worker bumped into a first-time visitor named Janet, and Janet dropped off her two boys in the nursery. She had never been to that church before, and after the service, Janet was waiting in the nursery to retrieve her boys, and one of the nursery workers quietly approached her and said there had been some issues. Her boys had never been to church before. And, and their, their boys were picking fights with other kids in the room. Their boys broke several of the toys that belonged to the church. I'm thinking, I have two boys. That's boys. That's, yeah. Um, <laughs> and in front of everyone right there, Janet didn't know what to do. And she starts scolding her boys and screaming at her boys. And then she lets out an, an expletive. I can't even say that word, right? <laughs> she lets out a word you wouldn't want to say in church. And then realizes what she's done. And deeply ashamed and feeling like a failure, she grabbed her boys, put her head down, just got out of there as quickly as she could. And the workers there, especially this one nursery worker that watched the whole thing, thought, well, she'll never be back. She'll never be back. Worst church experience ever. So this nursery worker on Monday called the church office, and um, they apparently were open on Mondays. And... (laughs) If you call tomorrow, we're not here on Mondays, but um, call the church office and say, hey, did, did, there was a new person here named Janet. Did she fill out a visitor card? And do we get any information on her? And the church office said, well, yes, we did, actually. Here's her, her address. And um, the nursery worker took that address, and unknown to the pastor or to the staff, she wrote Janet a letter. And in this letter, she writes, dear Janet, and something like this, I, I'm so glad you and your boys visited our church. And And about that little exchange in front of the nursery when you picked them up, let me just say, and she went on to describe that she actually found it honest and and that that was where Janet was at and that she appreciated that kind of transparency, that kind of honesty of not putting on a front. I'm not sure I could have said that. That, that, 
That is amazing. Um, she said, I, I, I'm really drawn to honesty, and I'd really like to be friends. I hope we can be. Love and then put her name. The nursery worker and Janet did, in fact, become friends. Janet came back the next Sunday, and the Sunday after that, and the Sunday after that. And eventually Janet accepted the Lord, and then down the road became the nursery director. (laughs) As she told her story later in her testimony, it turns out she had just come to church for the first time as a recovering heroin addict. And God changed her life. God changed her life because someone in the church was willing to go above and beyond and say, I care about you, even though (laughs) you may be a mess right now. She didn't say that in the letter. Um, But even though there may be things in life that aren't pleasing to God, it's where you're at. And Jesus is the answer. And she reached out and made a difference. I'm compelled by that story because I'm not sure if I would have done the same thing. I'm not sure if that would have been repulsing to me and repel me from the situation or if I would have reached out beyond that. And so it's made me think a lot, especially as I'm studying the passages this week where Jesus did that very thing and where Jesus challenges us to do the very thing. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. And and I pray that as we come to the text today, as we come to what Luke has written about Christ we will have open hearts and open minds for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Even if it means the Holy Spirit revealing some things and challenging us with some things in our lives. We're we're in Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one under a chair right around you that we invite you to take and follow along. Luke's in the New Testament. It'll be about two-thirds of the way through. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that home with you so you have God's Word. You have a copy of that. But Luke chapter 18, verse 35. And to give you sort of the big picture, I love the big picture of where things are going. Luke is divided into three sections. It's a trilogy of sort. It's always trilogies, right? Have you noticed? Even if they make the last movie five of them, or it's still called a trilogy. But Luke is a trilogy, and we had the first section of Luke that was all about the birth of Christ, the beginning of his ministry, his credentials, proving that he was the king. And then the middle section that we just finished and did our reading service last week was all about what it means to follow Christ and what the kingdom looks like. And so we had a lot of Jesus' teaching of just what it means to be a disciple. We read through that last week, and that was challenging to me, just to have God's word say, a disciple's this, a disciple's this, a disciple's this. And now we come to the final section uh, of Luke. You know, if it's Lord of the Rings, this would be called the return of the king. I'm going to call this section the victory of the king. Because now we see Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross, fulfilling his purpose to bring salvation and make it available to all men. And that's what this last third of Luke is going to be about. Well, as, as we, we begin this section, as Luke begins this section... He begins at the gateway to Jerusalem in Jericho with two stories of two people that Jesus brings to salvation. And they are some of the the most unlikely people you would expect to come to Christ, the undesirables, the outcasts of society. But what a way to start the section on salvation and God going to the cross because he loved this world than to show that he loves everyone. And so we want to zero in with Luke on these two stories and let them wash over us, let them challenge us, and and let us see how we can follow Christ. Point number one in your notes is the first story, verses 35 through 43 of Luke 18. 
And the, the point is Jesus pursues and saves undesirables that are oppressed, hurting, and outcast. Jesus pursues and saves undesirables that are oppressed, hurting, and outcast. In verse 35, we see the scene. And as he drew near Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now, we can just read that verse and move on, but you know that I won't. Um, We've got to see the setting. We've got to see the big picture here because to them, to the hearer, they would have been, yeah, Jericho, I know what Jericho is. I know what a beggar does, what what it means to be blind. We're separated by that from from that by 2,000 years. And so we get to do some geography with Pastor Ron again. Um, Jericho. Jericho is a city by the Jordan River. And there we go. We have a good picture there. A little hard to see. But um, you see Jericho down here. Jericho's down here. And Jerusalem's up here, which means the Jordan River's down here. And we're just off the Jordan River. Do you remember the first place Joshua, when we studied the book of Joshua, remember the first place they went? Jericho, right? And the walls came tumbling down. Same Jericho. This was the gateway from the east into the promised land. And specifically, the gateway to Jerusalem, which is up here in the hills. Jericho down here is about 800, 840 feet below sea level. Um, Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. So whenever, Pastor Andrew talked about this, whenever you read going up to Jerusalem, it literally meant going up to Jerusalem, okay? So you had a steep climb, and they would come along this path here, the ascent of Adamim, and they would get to Jerusalem. Up in here is probably where the parable of the Good Samaritan was, was set, Over in these hills here, it looks like where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. So that gives you sort of a lay of the land. This is desolate country. Um, Up here in Jerusalem, you're up in the mountains. Now you get trees and water, and it's just very, very beautiful up there. But down here is the wilderness, and it's desolate. Jericho, however, was an oasis. In fact, it was sometimes called the City of Palms. And so there was some springs there, some water there, and archaeologists will say that Jericho is the oldest continuously inhabited city on the planet. So a lot of history. As you go to Jericho, that's one of their signs as you go in. Oldest city. Uh, So they they claim that to to fame there. And um, probably about, you know, 7,000, 8,000 B.C. they can date it back to. Um, That journey from Jerusalem um, to Jericho, about 18 miles, 17, 18 miles but really, really harsh terrain. Herod, though, because Jerusalem would get snow and be pretty cold in the winter, King Herod had a palace here. And so he made this his winter palace in Jericho and and built that up. If you look at this slide, this is important to understand some of the the things that um, are different between Matthew and Mark and Luke. This is Jericho. Again, Jordan over here, mountains over here. And this is modern Jericho here, but this Teles Sultan, that is Old Testament Jericho, okay? That's the one that Joshua came, marched around, walls fell down, and they conquered it. Herod's palace is here. When they rebuilt Jericho, they rebuilt it about a mile or two away. There were two Jerichos of the time. There was Old Jericho and New Jericho. And I guess we, we, we understand that because today we have modern Jericho, which is yet in a third site. And so you have these different areas that happen over thousands of years as the city transforms. Why that's important for those of you that, that really are looking at the text in Matthew and Mark, in Matthew and Mark, it says that Jesus met this blind man that, were, that was begging as he left Jericho. And in Luke, it says as he's entering or in the vicinity of Jericho. And one of the, the popular opinions 
is that quite possibly Matthew and Mark are saying as he left Jericho and he's coming along here, meets the blind man as he's entering the other Jericho, the new Jericho. And so it'd be real easy for different authors to word that in different ways. Again, don't be afraid of, of what looks like conflicts in God's word. Study it. Figure it out. God's word is true. We don't have to be afraid of questions. And so that's, that's one of the things there. So that's, that's um, geography with Pastor Ron. Hopefully that was worthwhile. Jericho, though, represented the entry point to Jerusalem and everything beyond. And as such, it was the entry point for all of the goods that went to, to um, the promised land, to Jerusalem. We're going to see that in the next story. But the blind man that we have here, he's begging because that's all blind men could do. At the time, there, was no, there were no social welfare programs. There was no homes for blind men. If, if you were blind, you couldn't work. And anyone that couldn't work for any reason was stuck. And they had to make some money somehow. And so they almost always ended up at the city gates or along a major road begging. And so this man, and, and that's important to the story because it was considered a, a shameful activity. When you could do nothing else, you were stuck begging. And so the, the blind man would have been an outcast in society. He would have been looked down on, couldn't do anything. And it would have been, it would have been a really, really difficult, shameful life. I mean, imagine if you were that blind man. And his day probably began like any other day. He woke up and he, he probably has to get the, some of the straw out of his tattered clothes because he's just been sleeping on the ground somewhere. For breakfast, maybe he begs for some bread. Maybe he finds some leftover bread from the day before and, and gets some of the crusties off and then is able to eat that. And he feels his way to the city gate. And there he's going to beg and sit all day with some other blind men. And as he's there, he listens to the city come alive. Maybe a donkey, maybe a cart with wooden wheels going by. And he hears more of a hustle and bustle going on. But then this day is different. And he hears something different. He hears more noise. He hears a crowd. He hears something going on, a commotion. And we read on in the text. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And so he's like, what's going on? What, I'm hearing something. Maybe he grabs a robe and tugs on it. And then we get to verse 38 or 37. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Jesus is here. He's passing by. And that was all they had to say. And actually that was all they had to say for the blind man because he put the pieces together. He had heard of Jesus of Nazareth. And, and he knew who this was and he knew that this was hope. And he knew that this represented possibilities. And so in verse 38, he cried out, he being the blind man, he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Probably the best prayer ever. I need you, God, have mercy on me. No, I deserve to be healed or I deserve this. Just I need you, God, have mercy on me. Now what's interesting is the phrase he uses is son of David. And this is the only time, this, this story is the only time in Luke son of David is used because that was a very precise term that meant the Messiah. You are God. And so this blind man saw what no one else could see, that this person, this man, Jesus, was God himself and was the Messiah. And the blind man was proclaiming it. But he's just a blind beggar. And so in verse 39, we see sort of the, the, the tension of the story. 
and those who were in front, part of the, probably part of the party following Jesus. We don't know that it was his disciples. But those that are in front, they rebuked him saying, Be silent. Be silent. And the verse says, But he cried out all the more. He wasn't silent. He's like, oh, okay, it's on now. And, and he, says, he starts just yelling and it says, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. I know how this works. When, um, when my kids, I won't say which ones, <laughs> but maybe one of my older ones tells one of the younger ones to be quiet. And then they just sit there quietly because everything's good. No, no, they're, they're they're people like us and they have attitudes like us sometimes and they're like oh yeah you want me to be quiet and they just blare it out this guy's like no i'm not gonna be quiet this is jesus this is the messiah this is my chance and you see his persistence and he's gonna have jesus hear him and so he got louder not half-hearted but persistent and again he says son of david messiah have mercy on me same prayer And then in verse 40, everything changes. And Jesus stopped. And I would would underline that, highlight that word, because that represents Jesus' compassion. It represents His love for a marginalized of society, for someone that was an outcast, for an undesirable of society. And we see Jesus' heart here. And it is wonderful because it's the same God we serve now that says, I know you're hurting. I will stop. I will stop my journey to the cross and care and love people. And so Jesus stops and commands him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he, being the blind man, said, Lord, help me recover my sight. In the Greek, it's just one word that says see. See. I want to see. And I would argue he already sees more clearly than a lot of people around him. And so Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And I get chills when I read it because it's the simple interaction of someone coming to God and saying, you are God. Have mercy on me. Help me see. And Jesus said, your faith has made you well. And, and again, that word for made you well, there, it, and we, we have this in the English with some other words, but in this case, he uses the word for salvation. And it has double meaning. Not only do, can he see now, but he's also saved now. And th- there's another word they could have used just for a physical healing, but this represents a healing of the heart and the body. And so his faith, because he believed in Jesus... Because he knew who he was, Jesus not only gave him sight, but he gave him spiritual sight. And we remember back in Luke 4 when Jesus was reading the scroll from Isaiah and and about the Messiah. And one of the things he said is he'll bring recovery of sight to the blind. And here we are, his last miracle on his way to Jerusalem, and he gives recovery of sight to the blind. The man calls him the Messiah, and this time Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 don't, don't say that here for people to hear. Jesus accepts that. And we see a transition in Jesus' ministry where now he knows he's going to the cross, and so he acknowledges that he is the Messiah. And he accepts that. And he acts on that. And so he is made well, the blind man. 
And I love the response in 43. You see several responses. And immediately he recovered his sight, so he's healed. And what does he do? He follows him. And his first response is he was so grateful for salvation and for healing from Jesus that he followed him. He became part of the group. It's like, I have to be a Jesus follower. Second thing he does, glorifying God. He follows and glorifies. What a lesson for us when God does anything in our lives. It should build our faith that we follow God in a deeper and more significant way. But then we should be praising God, bringing glory to God, telling everybody about what He's done. And my guess is you couldn't shut the guy up. Because he's saying, our God is amazing. He's great. You know, I couldn't see yesterday. Now I can see. And, and he's telling what God has done. He asked God for mercy. He saw him work. He followed him. And he praised him. What a great description of the Christian life. We know who we are, so we ask God for mercy. We see his work in our lives. And so we follow him and we praise him. The verse doesn't stop there, though. It says, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And so this blind man, and, and Mark records his name as Bartimaeus, the, this blind man followed God, gave glory to God, and it was contagious, and everyone starts praising God because they're all seeing God's work. Sometimes we're, we're very private people, right? I'm a very private person. And there, there's times, so it, it's hard for me to share a lot of personal things that are happening in my life. But if I never share what God has done in my life, I may be robbing others from the blessings of praising God and seeing what God is doing. Now, I'm not saying we go around and tell our life story every time we meet a stranger, but there are settings where we need to say, this is what God has done and direct attention to him, direct the focus on him and praise him. What an amazing response from this blind man who could see clearly. Four takeaways, just real quickly, from this story, from the first story we have. The first is that very thing. Praise God often by talking about what he does. Praise God often about talk, by talking about what he does. Use personal stories. Here's the thing. Sometimes we get all scared of telling people about Jesus, right? And witnessing. I just have to say the word witnessing and I can clear a room. We're going to do a seminar on evangelism. And, and because we're like, oh no, I'm scared. The most effective way to share Jesus with others is to share your personal stories. People will listen to personal stories. They will listen to what God has done for you. And then you weave in the gospel and weave in God's word. And then that gives you a launch pad for sharing what Jesus can do for them. But are you willing to share your personal stories with people? It's a great way to praise God and talk about what he does. That could be awkward at work tomorrow morning. I get it. But do it. And people will begin to see your love for God. See that you're a Christ follower. And they'll be interested and wonder what's different. Do we talk about what God is doing? You know, a, a lot of this too, as we tell our stories, do we make sure God's the hero? Sometimes our stories are all about us. And no, no, God needs to be the hero. He gets the praise. So the first takeaway is praise God often by talking about what he does. Second takeaway Do we have the Savior's heart of compassion to people struggling or people we think are undesirable? Let me repeat that. Do we have the Savior's heart of compassion to people struggling or people we think are undesirable? 
out of all the people, Jesus intentionally stopped and spoke into the life of this undesirable blind beggar. Now, now keep in mind, when I use undesirable there, I'm not saying they were really undesirable. No, they're, they're made in the image of God, and they're desirable to God. But from a human standpoint, we write people off when we should never write people off. And Jesus is pounding us with that and challenging us with that. Do we have his heart? Third takeaway, and this is more if you're in the shoes of the beggar. If you're hurting and feel like life has beat you up, recognize who God is and trust him and care. That same Jesus that stopped for the beggar who was marginalized by society is the same Jesus that sees everything you go through and everything I go through and cares just as much and stops and shows his mercy and shows his care for us. Don't ever think you are alone in what you're going through. You're not. And this story reminds us of that. Because yes, we should copy the Savior, but we also need to realize where the benefit of that care and that compassion. And the final takeaway, and I just want to speak, if you're here this morning and you've never become a Christ follower, you've never given your heart to Christ, this story along with every other story in Luke, it seems, it reminds us and I urge you, allow God to open your eyes to the wonder of following him. Allow God into your heart to take away the blindness of sin that, that traps us and controls us and to realize that our sin has penalties, but Jesus on the cross paid the penalties so we don't have to. If we will follow him, if we will pursue him, if we will have faith in him and give him our heart, then that salvation is applied to us. I urge you, let Jesus drop the scales of blindness. And let you see what it means to follow him. If that's you today, talk to me afterwards. Come get, I'll, I'll take whatever time you need. Talk to me or any of the elders will. And we'll make sure that today we do business with God. And, and take care of that. Someone once asked Helen Keller, who was blind and deaf, Isn't it terrible to be blind? And she responded, Better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. To me, that summarizes the story of the blind beggar. He saw who Jesus was. He saw the need for mercy. And he called out and saw God work. So then we get to the next story. And I know there's a chapter division. Remember, in the original um, manuscript, there were no chapter divisions. And I think these two stories intentionally go together. This next story in chapter 19, and we'll look at verses 1 through 10, is about Zacchaeus. Now, probably when I say, say Zacchaeus, in your mind starts going... Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Yeah, I'm not going any further than that. Um, and so this is a Sunday school story. And the danger was... Now, let me make sure I'm clear here. I love Sunday school stories. And we teach our kids at a level that they can understand. The danger with Sunday school stories is we become adults and we never get the bigger picture. And we never see what God wanted to teach us through there. And we're still singing a song. And we, we, we forget that this is in the bigger context of Jesus starting his journey to the cross and who he's trying to reach. And so enjoy the kids' stories. And I'm glad we do those. They're doing some stories right now. But um, let's get beyond the song. And so we start in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 19. He, being Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. 
And again, we, we've talked about Jericho. We won't do any more geography. And we get to verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, as soon as the, the reader would have heard Luke say that, what would their response have been? Boo, hiss, you know, the, the whole villain. If you remember, we've talked about tax collectors. Tax collectors were, were more than scoundrels. They were despised and hated. Tax collectors chose to go into contract with Rome to subvert and to oppress fellow Jews. They were traitors. And so they would get these tax contracts. Now Jericho, remember what I said about Jericho? Gateway to Jerusalem and gateway from the east to Jerusalem. It was a town where goods all the time came through. One of three towns in Israel that were gateway towns. Capernaum and Jericho. And um, actually Jerusalem wasn't gateway, but it was a, a, a trade headquarters. And so to, to secure this contract for taxation in Jericho would have meant a life of whatever you wanted. A life that was rich. Now, did you notice what it said, what kind of tax collector he was? He was a chief tax collector, which means he was over all the other tax collectors, which means he was organizing how to oppress the Jewish people. Because a tax collector, they would collect Rome's taxes, and then they would add on whatever they wanted, maybe two or three times the tax for themselves, and then Zacchaeus would probably get some of that from each of the tax collectors under him. And that was how you became rich. No one could do anything because you had a contract with Rome and they wanted their goods through so that the tax collectors could do whatever they wanted to the people. And money won. Riches won. And so Zacchaeus was hated as a traitor, as a betrayer, as an oppressor, as a rich man that used his riches to oppress other people. That's the setting of verse 2 that we have to understand this would have been someone that they would have expected Jesus to rebuke, just like he had been the Pharisees, and to call out for his sin. And in verse 3, it says, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. And we don't know why. Maybe he had heard of Matthew, um, a tax collector that became a disciple. Um, Maybe he was just curious of what was going to happen to his town. I, I don't know. But somehow God was drawing Zacchaeus to himself. And, and maybe riches weren't as fulfilling as he wanted. They never are. We have a God-sized hole in our hearts that won't be fulfilled until we follow Christ. And so he's seeking, and, and whatever the reason, he comes. And it says, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And yes, that goes back to the song, We Little Man. Um, but, but get this, he was one of the most powerful men in the city, but he was sm- short. And so there's this, this interesting blend there. And he can't get through the people to see Jesus. Well, yeah, the people aren't going to do him any favors. He's hated and despised. And so he's trying to get through. I can just picture an extra sharp elbow or or pushing him back or something. And so Zacchaeus, he's not to be deterred. In verse 4, he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. There was a road, and he goes to a sycamore tree. I think we have a picture of a sycamore tree. So that big tree in the center there, that is a sycamore tree. And one of the features of it, it has low branches. And so it's very easy to climb. This is a modern day. This is in in Jericho now. One of the sycamore trees that they have. As you drive through, the guide always points out the sycamore tree. It's it's pretty cool. But um, so Zacchaeus was up in one of these right over where Jesus would go because he was going to see this man. 
he, he needed to see Jesus. He didn't know why, but he showed this persistence, this childlike persistence, this effort, this resourcefulness. And Jesus would change his life because they met. Point number two. Did I never give point number two? Let me, get, let me give point number two. Jesus pursues and saves undesirables that are sinners, despised, and oppressors. Jesus pursues and saves undesirables that are sinners, despised, and oppressors. And so we're about to have this meeting. And we get to verse 5. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And again, I would underline the word must. It's there intentionally. It's not, I'd like to stay at your house. I must. Jesus is on mission. This is what he is purposing to do in Zacchaeus' life. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus is like amazed. This is going to be an opportunity to host this famous rabbi, this famous man. Uh, my stature is going to go up. I, I don't know all the reasons, but he's joyful for whatever reason. And the people didn't respond quite so joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Remember, Zacchaeus tax collector, despised, hated, scorned. And Jesus comes and says, I'm going to stay at your house. Not just I'm going to have a meal with you. I'm going to stay there. Probably meant an overnight stay. And hospitality in, in the Middle East is very different than hospitality here. So to stay with somebody and to eat with somebody was to identify with them. It was to, to put yourself under their protection. It was to be with them more than just a half hour at lunch, but to identify with them personally, to invest in them personally. And Jesus is investing in a pagan, hated sinner? That is ridiculous. See, the first story was okay because the blind man was blind not by his own doing. We can feel sorry for him and the people rejoiced there. But this, this is a man who by his own decisions, by his own poor choices is where he is and Jesus still has compassion on him? Do you see the angst of the crowd? Yeah, they, they don't understand it. But Jesus knew that every person is of worth and every person is an image bearer worthy of salvation. And so Jesus says, yeah, I'm staying at your house, man. Let's go have dinner, uh, maybe a, a nice bed. And I have 12 disciples with me, by the way, so they, they need to stay here too. And when they saw it, the crowd, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And in verse 8, we see the result. There's lots of debate, but most likely there's a little bit of a gap between seven and eight, maybe overnight. And so they go in and have dinner. He stays the night. Jesus and Zacchaeus just talk. And and Zacchaeus is changed. And so in verse eight, we see this pronouncement. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. And interesting, he's now calling Jesus Lord. And so his heart has changed. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And we see this beautiful verse of repentance, of restitution. And so Zacchaeus has encountered Jesus. Zacchaeus has changed. And now his change is evidenced by his actions. 
And one of the things with repentance, and we, we, we've talked before about repentance and what does it mean to repent. Real repentance is more than just words, isn't it? I can say I'm sorry or I repent of something, but real repentance affects my actions because it literally means a U-turn, a turnaround. I will change what I do. And so Zacchaeus here says, you know what? First thing I'm going to do, I'm going to take all my riches. Half of it is going to go to the poor right now. He didn't have to do that. In fact, in Jewish custom, their tithe was actually more than 10%. It was 20 to 25%. And a, a large portion of that went to the poor and went to the needy of Israel. But instead, he gives 50%. He's overwhelmed with who Jesus is. He's overwhelmed with Jesus' love and compassion on him and undesirable. Someone that doesn't deserve it. He says, I'm going to give half my riches to the poor. And then he says, I'm going to give fourfold restitution to anyone I've defrauded. Again, Jewish law says you give the money back plus 20%. So Jewish law, you, you have to give some restitution and some money for their trouble. But he says, you know what? I'm going to give four times what I stole from anyone. At this point, that's out of the half that he kept. And he doesn't have much left. But he was so serious about his repentance that he chased after a godly way of viewing wealth. And he chased after God's heart for those that are needy, the poor, and those that he had oppressed. And this man was changed. That's repentance. Repentance changes. Repentance lets God change us. And so he goes above and beyond to make sure things are made right. This is a reminder of one of the themes that we've seen throughout Luke. Luke keeps talking about money, which is very meddlesome. But, but he keeps talking about money, and this is a reminder to use whatever possessions we have in a God-honoring way. Zacchaeus was using them for a self-centered way to be rich, and now he has changed to use them in a God-honoring way to use them for the Savior. And in verse 9, it goes on and says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And, and the wording there, there's lots of debate. What does that mean? Because he was already a Jew. More than likely, it's now he has the faith of Abraham. We know that Abraham was justified by his faith. He believed in God. He followed God. He obeyed God. And now Zacchaeus is a true son of Abraham because he has faith in the Savior. He had faith that Abraham did. True, only a mustard seed. But remember, a mustard seed's enough if it's in God. Because it's not the amount of our faith that matters, it's who our faith is in that matters. It's interesting because this is a, a good comparison. If you remember, Pastor Andrew just a couple weeks ago talked about the rich man and the rich man that came to Jesus and what must I do to be saved. And, and more than likely, Luke put that at the end of the discipleship narratives to, to correspond with this one because now we have another rich man. And that rich man, Jesus said, give all you can't have to the poor. And he wouldn't do it. He walked away. He wasn't saved. And Jesus said, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to come into the kingdom. But he wasn't saying it's impossible because this story is a camel that goes through the eye of the needle. And a rich man that comes to Christ because he's willing to give up his hold on his riches and let God use them. And to follow God no matter the cost. And in verse 10, our verse of the day, it's a 
you're memorizing God's word, I'd memorize this today. Verse 10 then serves as the summary for the whole next section of Luke, actually for the whole book of Luke. It's the summary of Jesus' ministry, his mission. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was his mission. That was his calling. That was the purpose and mission he passed on to us as his disciples. Our heart is to seek and to save the lost. In Matthew, we see that worded as disciple them, bring them in and then teach them to follow God. That's the heart of our Savior. That's what we want to be our heart. Some takeaway questions from this section. I've worded all these as questions because they pen- this, this section has just penetrated my heart. And my, how committed am I with a heart for the lost, for the heart, a heart for those that I think are undesirable? First question is, are we seeking the lost or running from the lost? Are we seeking the lost or running from the lost? So many times it's easy to get into our, our Christian huddles, right? Where, where we, we come to church and we're around Christians. We go to lunch with Christians and we go home and they're believers. And, and so many of the places we go, there's believers and we go to Bible study and, and hopefully you have neighbors that aren't believers, but now we don't talk to neighbors much because that's sort of creepy. It shouldn't be. Um, and, and, um, I actually waved to a neighbor this morning. It was awesome. <laughs> but what is it about Southern California that makes us not want to do that? So we get into our Christian circles. And are we, are we seeking the lost or running from the lost? One of the reasons I hear, and I want to be careful here, there's lots of reasons people have left California, but one of the reasons I sometimes hear is things are getting bad there. There's going to be bad influence on my children. Yeah, there is. And that's the lost that we're to be seeking, not running from. And those influences are everywhere because there's sin everywhere. God's heart is for the lost. Isolating from the lost is not God's heart. Did you catch that? Isolating ourselves from the lost is not God's heart. And it is hard to be His hands and feet when we're ignoring the people He wants us to to reach. And I'm challenged by that. As a pastor, I don't have a lot of non-Christians in my life. And I need to make sure I do. I need to make sure that the neighbor that I have as my stick figure is getting invited and coming. And praise God, they have a couple times. And you guys have reached out to them. My heart should be for them to know Jesus. Second question, letter B. Are we willing to get uncomfortable to share Jesus with others? Get uncomfortable to share Jesus with others. It might mean being around people that have a little bit of language. And I'm not saying we sin. I'm not saying we, we drop into that. And we've talked about that before. But I don't expect someone else to act like a believer until Jesus has come into their lives and the Holy Spirit has transformed them. And so, so yeah, the neighbor that we're trying to reach, they use language sometimes. And, and, and I don't stand there and say, you know, you shouldn't talk that way around me. I say, hey, you want to come to church? Jesus wants to change you. He wants to to come into your life and fulfill your life and to take care of the the things that you're dealing with. Very different. 
And, and again, I know as parents, and we have a lot of young parents here, we, we have to be careful and, we, and we, we watch what kind of influence are on our kids' lives. But I would, I would say we might teach more to our kids by letting them see neighbors act like that and see us reach out to them than we would by shutting our front doors and deadbolting them and never letting them be around it. I'm convicted by that sometimes when I see what kind of movies or TV shows we watch. And sometimes we allow things into our home that we're trying to shelter our kids from in the outside world. Whereas maybe a better way is to recognize it and teach them how to deal with it. And teach them that those people need God. And those people need Jesus. And this is why we don't say those words. And this is what God's heart is when people use his name in vain. But that's why we interact with them. And that's why we reach out to them. Letter C. Do we have the Savior's heart of compassion? Same, same type of question as the first section. Do we have the Savior's heart of compassion to people who are in sin and whose decisions have led them where they are? That has to sink in for me. Do we have the Savior's heart of compassion to people who are in sin and whose decisions have led them where they are? And I'm sure the people thought Zacchaeus deserved whatever was coming to him. They deserve it. How will they learn? And we're not seeing God's compassion. Now, I know there's a balance there, and I know people have to to pay for what they've done in a social way, but our heart is for compassion and for them to find Jesus. And finally, letter D, do we really believe God wants to and save anyone? Have we, do we ever give up on people and say, well, God, God can't save them? Do we, do we see certain people and certain types of people and have other first thoughts than, than Jesus could totally save them? Maybe our first thoughts are completely different from that. All these things re- reflect our heart. And do we have a heart of compassion that seeks and saves the lost? Point number three is just out of, out of verse 10. And that desire of Jesus to seek and save the lost. But I I sort of want to wrap it up to to think through, why do we struggle with this issue? And point number three is Jesus pursues and the undesirables that are us. See, I I would challenge us that the, the reason we struggle with reaching out to undesirables is somehow we think they're different from us. Somehow we think we're better. And that will lead to a heart that doesn't want to, re- want, to, want to reach out. That'll lead to a critical heart. That'll lead to a heart that looks down on them. We have to remember that we were all sinners, that we were all enemies of God. We were all people that do not deserve grace. Just because God has given us a gift we didn't deserve, didn't earn, and, and couldn't earn, that doesn't make us better. In fact, the more we're aware of what God has done for us, the more our compassion and mercy should flow to other people. Right? Romans 5.8. What does Romans 5.8 say? But God showed His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While I was still an enemy of God, while I was opposed to God, before I even turned to Him, Jesus loved me and died on the cross for my sins. 
knowing every sin I would ever commit, knowing every sin I have committed, and he still, knowing all the junk in my life, loved me and died for me. Man, that helps us break down the the strongholds of superiority, uh, of thinking that we're better, because we realize we're all in the same boat. This this levels the playing field. You've heard me say that the, the, the playing field's level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Every one of us needs Christ to that degree. I put a quote in your notes from Tim Keller. feed this week, sort of fun when, when things come up that match what you're preaching on. And I put it in there because Tim Keller's stuff, you sort of have to digest. He's, some people call him the C.S. Lewis of our time, and you just sort of have to chew on it. The person who knows he has received mercy, while an undeserving enemy of God, will have a heart of love for even and especially the most ungrateful and difficult persons. Why? Because we are. Because we are too. And that just crushes pride and says we are all sinners in need of God's mercy that God has saved. And so we praise him and tell others what he's done. If you're starting to feel like "Eh, it's hard to show compassion to someone, remember God put you in his family tree too. And that's humbling. I want to end with a story from Charles Spurgeon, a famed preacher. He also established a pastor's college. I don't know if you knew that, to train pastors. And that still exists to this day. And one of the features of the pastor's college was the question oak. And it was at his estate, his residence, where if the weather permitted, students would come on Friday afternoons and they would ask him questions. It was Q&A with Charles Spurgeon. It's pretty cool. But then one of the features of it is he could then ask them to give a message on something anytime. Um, And and so it it, it went both ways. And one of the days, Spurgeon called on a student, said, I'd like you to give me a message on Zacchaeus. And the student rose and said, Zacchaeus was of little stature. So am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree. So am I. Zacchaeus came down. So will I. That the student sat down, and all the students, including Spurgeon, applauded. Shortest message ever, but wow, was it powerful. We all need Jesus. We're all up a tree without him. And he's reached and asked every one of us to follow him. And as we follow him, we're to grab as many people along with us to go along the way. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. May we be a people that pursues you wholeheartedly, that are so aware of what you've done for us that we in turn show compassion on those that this culture marginalizes or that the church in America marginalizes. Lord, may we be a people that seek to save, to bring people to you like you did. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for what you've done. Lord, as we end our service now, we want to praise you. We want to thank you for what you've done and just reflect what the blind beggar did and reflect our commitment to you. Lord, help us to be a church that is called out to be Christ-like. In Jesus' name, amen.